right, good morning. This is fun. I've, I've been here. Uh, my name's Jim, and uh, my friend Eric and I, who you heard yesterday, uh, we're getting to split this time together, and so I'm grateful for that. Eric and I uh, worked together at a church in Grand Rapids for three, four years, and now Eric is uh, leading a church in Sandusky, Ohio. I'm still at the church in Grand Rapids, uh, but it's fun to have this excuse to get together and to teach God's Word together and I was in this first session yesterday and I sat there and I thought, Lord, you picked Eric exactly for this uh, message for this time. And so I'm super grateful uh, to be able to uh, be with him and to sit under his teaching. And I'm also grateful for the chance to share God's word with you. You know, uh, this is my 11th year at Gull Lake. First year I've ever had a platform extension. So that's a nice, uh, a nice deal. But you know, Gull Lake's really... Uh, I was feeling convicted yesterday. Um, this, is, this place is a lot of fun and, you know, uh, just lots of energy and excitement. I've started to get older, and so some of the energy and excitement doesn't rile me up quite as much anymore. But, you know, so much fun. We got to play soccer out here, uh, kind of in the green space, great food. And to be honest, I was kind of thinking, oh, man, and I got to speak tomorrow. Like, this was like the downer of the week. And uh, I was praying, and the Lord was like, I know it's a downer for you too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's all just be open and honest, full confession. And you know, the Lord was like, hey, this is my word. Like, you get to share my word with people. And so I was convicted, like, you know what? Uh, this is, the, the, the week is not supposed to be like Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, but this is the word of God, and we get to talk about Jesus. And he's the one that makes all of this possible. And so I felt a little, just a little bit like, you know what? This is uh, well done, Gull Lake, to make sure that Bible and Jesus are a central part of what we do here. It's not the only thing that we do. Lots of fun, lots of fellowship, lots of joy. Uh, but we got an opportunity uh, to listen to God's word. And I sat there as Eric was uh, preaching God's word yesterday. And I heard from the spirit some really, I was like, wow, that's, I was taking some great notes and I heard some really powerful things from the spirit. And I was like, how cool is that? That amidst all of the fun and the great food and the fellowship, we also get to hear from God. So I'd like to open us in prayer. And then uh, I'd like to take us into the talk that Jesus has for us this morning. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful for being here. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you, uh, God, for sunshine. Thank you for a camp. Uh, Lord God, it's a chance to get away from just kind of everyday life and to kind of come and commune with you. Lord, forgive me for forgetting that this is about communing with you uh, and thinking this was about just more fun. Uh, Lord, what we need in life is not just all fun. We need you. And if the storms of this past year have taught us anything, uh, it's that fun doesn't get us through those things. Uh, God, it's you. And so, Lord, I don't know uh, where everybody here today is coming from, what their background is, what they're going through, but I do know every single person in this room needs a word from you. And so, God, that's not possible if this was just an inspirational human talk, if this was a TED talk or some sort of thing in which we're just kind of espousing human ideas. But Lord, if we open up your word 
your spirit can, it's alive, it's living and powerful. It can cut through all the junk in life and it can reach into our hearts, into the very bones and marrow of our souls. And so God, would you do that today? Uh, Lord, please, uh, God, show each and every one of us that the grandest and greatest thing that we could ever experience is fellowship and interaction with you. And so, Lord, here we are, your children, gathered in this place, and we want to say to you, speak, Lord, Uh, your servants are listening. Jesus, we ask all of this in your name. Amen. So I am a senior pastor of a church called Calvary Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I have been the senior pastor there for 15 years. About five years into being the senior pastor there, uh, there was a group of people at the church who decided they did not want me to be the pastor anymore. Uh, It was an incredibly painful experience. There was about 200 of them uh, that sort of banded together and uh, passed out petitions uh, to get me fired. I would be up speaking and they would be in the back uh, recruiting people. Uh, they uh, publicly denounced me at um, annual meetings. They uh, tried to hire a lawyer. They got, um, tried to get some outside ministry consultants to come in and to tell the elders that I was doing a terrible job. They recruited a prominent staff member to kind of join their coup. And uh, he was really miserable. And so for me and my family, I didn't know what I was doing. Like this was kind of my first experience uh, in, a, in, a, in a big leadership position like this. And, uh, but it wasn't going very well, apparently. And so this was incredibly painful. These were people that I had known. So this church that I'm a pastor at is a church that I went to uh, since high school. So I knew most of these people pretty well. Uh, I was friends with their kids and in some cases their grandkids. And even in just the short five years that I had been working at the church, I had walked with some of them through some reasonably deep pastoral things and had been at bedsides when they were sick or done funerals of a spouse for them or other kinds of things. And I thought, man, it just felt like, I don't know, it just felt like uh, betrayal. It felt terrible, you know, like I could barely go into the building. Uh, I just always was on edge and always wondering. There were lots of rumors being spread about me. And uh, I would talk to people and I would try to tell them, no, I don't believe those things or I don't think those things. That's not true. And I would get them to understand that. And then they would leave and go tell everybody that I said something different or that I believe something different. And so right in the middle of this, this is at the kind of the five-year mark. So it didn't start year one. So like years one through four, it was, I think, I guess, just sort of slowly brewing. And then year five, it started to kind of come out into the open more. And so in the middle of this, uh, I got a study leave and uh, I went away to Wheaton College. And I was just sitting in the library at Wheaton College and I was like, you know what, I think I'm done. You know, I I had heard lots of stories about uh, pastors who didn't make it in ministry. And I thought, oh, man, I feel bad for them, but I don't think that's going to be me. Like, I'm going to do it the right way. I'm going to pray and I'm going to be honest and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to work hard. And sitting in that room at the college, at Wheaton College, I realized, oh, no, I'm, I'm one of those ones who doesn't make it. 
Like I never wanted to go back into Calvary Church ever again. I never wanted to see that building. I never, I didn't even want to go back to the city of Grand Rapids. Like I just, I wanted to just run away. And I wanted to go somewhere else and do something else and not have anything to do with all these people that hated me. Well, in the middle of this, the Lord met me in just the kindest, most gracious way. Uh, He gave me a psalm, uh, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And it was just, that's why I say like a word from the Lord, as wonderful as playing soccer is or enjoying sunshine or eating great food. When you hear the living God speak to you, when he says something to you in the midst of your situation, you know, David is right. It is, it is better than silver or gold. It's better than, it's sweeter than honey. And so in the middle of that situation, the Lord spoke into my heart and it was like, it was life. But he also told me something that turned out to be a transition point uh, in my life of being a disciple. Somewhere along the way, and you'll hear me as I speak, I, I kind of shorthand say, you know, God told me this or God said that. This is just taking what is, you, you know, hours and hours of trying to think through and pray through stuff and just condensing it down. So when I tell you the story, I don't take hours and hours to do it. But somehow in my prayer time and reading God's word in Psalm 27, there was also some stuff in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. The Lord somehow said to me, not audibly, but just sort of in my soul, hey, look, this is 90% their fault and 10% your fault. And I immediately was like, oh, no, 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 no. 100% their fault, 0% my fault. And in just the kindest way, uh, he was like, no, a portion of this is your fault. And he said, the problem is you're a people pleaser. And I said, no, I'm not. Like I say hard things to people all the time. And God was like, well, that's just because you're insensitive. (laughs) He's like, you still want them to like you and affirm you even in the hard things that you say to them. And God in that moment, was trying to tell me, hey, look, you can't please them and me at the same time. You're going to have to pick. And so by God's grace, I was like, I'm not picking them. (laughs) Like, no matter what I've done to try to be kind to them, they don't love me the way God loves me. And so I picked God. I went back. There were still two more years until the Lord kind of sorted the whole thing out. So I can tell you now, I love being at the church. It's fantastic. But after five years, it wasn't until year seven uh, that the Lord finally sorted all. But he told me, he's like, I got this. You're just going to have to trust me. But the thing that made all the difference was not the circumstances changing. It was the idea, I'm here to please God. And if I end up fired, I end up fired. If these people hate me, they hate me but I'm here to do what God wants me to do. And that made all the difference in the world. And so the next two years, which were still pretty difficult, the opposition actually ended up being confirmation that I was doing what the Lord wanted me to do. Now, you might think the moment that the suffering ended, that was the high point. It wasn't. The high point was what happened at year five when the Lord brought me to this point of realizing hey, look, we got to move from one kind of disciple 
to another kind of disciple. Eric did a great job yesterday talking about the call, the call to be disciples, to follow Jesus, and not just externally, but in the heart. Today, we're talking about the stages. If you think about discipleship as a journey, if it's like running a marathon, there are stages that you go through. And what happened to me at that college, uh, at Wheaton College, was that unbeknownst to me, I was making a transition from being one kind of disciple to being another kind of disciple. And that doesn't mean that the first kind was bad. It just means it's a process. It's a journey. And that the Lord was taking me from sort of stage one to a second stage in the discipleship journey. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today is as we think about the journey of discipleship, it does change along the way. And I want to show that to you from God's word. And I want to walk through how that happens and how it might be that God is calling you to just even understand where you are in the discipleship process. You may be early on, You may be in the midst of that transition that I was going through. You may be in this second stage, but we want to talk together about discipleship and following Jesus. Some things change along the way. So if you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8. And happy or hold down. I know that uh, when I'm done, I'm praying. But what time am I done? Just so I make sure I hit my 11.15. Great, thank you. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8. Now, we're just jumping right into the middle of the gospel of Mark. And just like I didn't really tell you the story about how I became a Christian, and I didn't tell you early on in my discipleship process, We're not starting with the beginning of the discipleship journey. Eric did that for us yesterday, and he took us through the story in Luke where Jesus calls them to be fishers of men. If we looked at that in Mark's gospel, the Luke version is the better version to look at that story, but if we looked at it in Mark's gospel, it would be Mark chapter 1. So that was the beginning of the journey of Mark's gospel. So we're not at the beginning. We've jumped right into the middle. And so without giving you all that happened in Mark 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, we're jumping right into the middle of Mark 8. And we're going to look at the entire chapter. So stick with me. And that's because transitions from one stage of being a disciple to another stage of being a disciple take some time. And even in the Gospel of Mark, there's time as these disciples that we saw getting called yesterday transition into what I would call this second stage of discipleship, Uh, this thing that I went through sitting at Wheaton College and going through this very difficult experience. So let's jump into Mark 8, and there's a number of stories. We're just going to work our way through them. The first story, and you can see it kind of with your uh, subtitles or whatever, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Uh, and just a powerful story. Eric mentioned or referenced this uh, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds 5,000. He also feeds 4,000. Beautiful thing. He takes whatever's given to him, loaves and fishes, and multiplies them and uses them for amazing things. Here's this powerful miracle. I mean, one lunch. I was, I was saying to Lisa yesterday as Eric was talking about this, nobody else brought any food? Like, what was anybody thinking? 
no food. But here's this, somebody's got some food and he brings it. And Jesus multiplies it to feed 5,000 people. And the amazing thing about the miracle to me, there's more food left over at the end of the miracle than what Jesus started with. It's unbelievable. They fill up seven baskets of food when they're done from these loaves and fishes. Now you would think, wow, this is epic. Like this is the kind of miracle, once you see this, everybody should believe in Jesus. But look at verses 11 and 12. As soon as he's done with this miracle, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. What? A sign? This is at the end of feeding 4,000 people from some loaves and fishes. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. And you think, what more could you ask for? We think that what the Pharisees are looking for is something that looks more apocalyptic. They're looking for like fire from heaven. They're looking for perhaps writing in the sky or maybe a plague like Moses did in Egypt. They're looking for something that's got more of the numinous factor like, whoa, the whole earth shakes at Jesus' command or Jesus says the word and 10,000 angels show up. They've missed the fact completely that he just fed 4,000 people. And as you hear their response, you think, are they blind? Can they not see what is going on? Jesus has just done this amazing miracle and their response is, hey, why don't you give us a sign? So the first story we realize these Pharisees can't see what's going on. Second story, verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. So they got into the boat, but they forget bread. Except for one loaf they had with them. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Now, if you're underlining in your Bible or you're taking notes or you're paying close, close attention, look at this next verse. Do you still not what? see or understand are your hearts hardened verse 18 do you have eyes but what fail to see and ears but fail to hear and don't you remember when i broke the five loaves for the five thousand how many basketfuls of pizzas did you pick up 12 they reply and when i broke the seven loaves for the four thousand how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up they answered seven he said to them, do you still not understand? Now, I'll be honest with you. I read this story and I get to the end. I go, I'm not sure I understand. There's some confusing stuff going on here. We're going to work our way through it. But the point I want you to take right now is, in many ways, these disciples are having the same or at least a similar struggle to the Pharisees. There's a miraculous sign that happens in the feeding of the 4,000, but the Pharisees can't see it. Now in the boat, something else is going on and Jesus accuses his disciples of not being able to see. All right, everybody with me so far? 
Next story in Mark, we're going to get what I think is the oddest miracle that Jesus ever did. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, "Uh, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, the reason why I think this is the strangest miracle that Jesus ever does is it feels like the first pass didn't take, right? Now, if he had gone to a doctor and we had to have two surgeries to get his eyesight corrected, we would think that was normal. But it's Jesus. Miraculous. He opens the eyes of the blind, but in this guy's case, he spits on his eyes and he's like, hey, how's that? He's like, well, to be honest, it's not very good. (laughs) Like, if I'm honest with you, and I don't know if you're ever in the eye doctor, I feel bad always telling the optometrist or whatever. I'm like, well, I think it's the third one or maybe the fourth one or option one or option two. I just got these glasses. I had to go back, like, because apparently I wasn't honest enough with the uh, the optometrist. And so I ended up with the wrong prescription. And so I went back and he's like, well, you weren't super. I mean, it just, he kept going back and forth. This guy, I'm sure, is like, well, I was expecting a little more, to be honest. I can't see very well. Now, as Christians, we're like, okay, well, Jesus is not a doctor. What is going on here? Like, he doesn't do anything by accident. It's no surprise that this story about healing a blind man comes right where it does in the Gospel of Mark. Remember the Pharisees, Jesus in their front of their own eyes, feeds 4,000 people and they can't see it. The disciples are on the boat and something is going on in the discussion and they think it's about bread and Jesus thinks it's about something else and he accuses them of being blind. And then we get this guy that Jesus has to take two stages to heal. Once, miraculously, now he can see people but they kind of look like trees, and then a second time, and then he can see fully. And what it turns out is that this is not an accident at all. This is very purposeful on the part of Jesus, like everything he does. And it's purposely placed where it is because the healing of this blind man is a metaphor for discipleship. And what Jesus is showing here is that there are at least, in this case, two stages to the discipleship process we see this unfold even more clearly as we keep going in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. As soon as this two-stage miracle is done, verse 27, Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Okay, Those people, we don't know who they are, but they're at random people. They are like the Pharisees. They are unable, they are blind to seeing who Jesus is. Jesus is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah and he's not one of the prophets. 
They're where the blind man was before he got healed at all. They're where the Pharisees are in the feeding of the 4,000. This is what you might call stage zero. It's no stage at all. When they look at Jesus, whether the crowds or the Pharisees, they can't see God incarnate in Jesus at all. And so they're blind. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Jesus answered, you are the Messiah. So Peter and the rest of the disciples are showing themselves not to be blind like the Pharisees or the people who say you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah, one of the prophets. They show that their eyes have been somewhat healed by God. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, you couldn't have known this unless my father from heaven opened your eyes to see it. So we see there's been some level of miraculous healing so that Peter and James and John and the other disciples see Jesus in a way that the crowds and the Pharisees don't. But then watch what happens in verse 31. He, and again, if you're paying close attention or underlying or taking notes, he then, you see that word? He then began to teach them, meaning up until this point in Mark's gospel, what you're about to hear, nobody's heard yet. This is some newer teaching that Jesus has not explained to anybody to this point. Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, none of this teaching. But right here we have a turning point where Jesus starts teaching his disciples something that they have never heard before. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, who? Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter's still blind. And the point of this two-stage miracle is to show the disciples that although they are clearly disciples, they are not where the Pharisees are, they are not where the crowds are that say, oh, you're Elijah, you're John the Baptist. There is still blindness when they look at Jesus. There's something they can't see. And at this moment in Mark's gospel, they are seeing Jesus, but he looks like trees. They can't see him clearly who he is. And Jesus begins in Mark chapter 8 to move them into the second stage of discipleship. God has miraculously opened their eyes so that they know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they are still blind to the fact that Jesus is a suffering Messiah. That's what they can't see. This is the problem on the boat. They're not like the Pharisees. They know that the feeding of the 4,000 is a sign. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's something about suffering and about sacrifice that they don't get. And here's the main point. The second stage in the discipleship process 
is embracing the centrality of suffering and sacrifice in following Jesus. When I was sitting in that library at Wheaton College, I was very clearly a disciple. I was very clearly a Christian. I had been a Christian for some time. I was even in ministry. But there was something I wasn't seeing. I thought, if you pray hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you do the right thing, it'll go well. That there might be a way to chart a course through ministry and through life that lets you avoid suffering as much as possible to avoid sacrifice as much as possible. And I was blind to the fact that that's not how Jesus set this up. The first stage of discipleship, it's really about us. It's about us having our sins forgiven. Praise the Lord. It's about us receiving eternal life. Praise the Lord. It's about us finding a community of faith. Praise the Lord. How kind of God. The first stage of discipleship is about look at all the blessings God has poured out on our lives. Look at what he's done for us. But at some point in the discipleship process, there comes a transition where the journey of following Jesus is not just about us. It becomes more about Jesus. It becomes more about following his example. It becomes more about being willing to embrace sacrifice, being willing to embrace suffering. Look at what Jesus says to close out Mark chapter 8. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels." This passage is not not Mark 2 or Mark 3 or Mark 4 or Mark, Mark 5. But at some point in the discipleship process, we have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves. He's calling us to take up our cross and follow him. And if stage zero in the process is not believing in Jesus, stage one in the discipleship process is realizing Jesus is the Messiah and we receive through him the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But at some point, there is another stage where Jesus calls us out of simply being focused on all the blessings and invites us to come with him on the journey of suffering and sacrifice and to embrace this is the road. Four observations about the sort of... uh, transition or this second stage of discipleship that I want to give you this morning. Number one, God moves us miraculously from one stage to the next. The reason why Jesus embeds this miraculous healing story, this two-stage 
healing story in the middle of all that's happening. You've got uh, the feeding of the 4,000. You've got the confusion on the boat. Right in the center is this miraculous healing story. This is meant to remind us Jesus is the teacher and we're the students. Eric said it yesterday about the feeding of the 5,000. We don't have to perform the miracle. We just got to give him what we got. The good news is, is that Jesus is the one who's in charge of moving us through these transitions. He's the master, we're the disciple. If you sit here today and think, uh-oh, should I be in stage two and I'm only in stage one and what do I need to do? You know, we're all ambitious and success-oriented. We want to be, we want to make it all happen. I've got good news for you. The talk that I was meant to give to you today was not meant to convict you and make you think, oh man, I'm a terrible disciple. It's just meant to inform you that Jesus is the one who moves us through the process. And if you see him doing it, don't be surprised. Don't think that something unusual has happened. Don't think if you find yourself in a situation that I found myself in where I'm like, I did everything, not everything, but I did lots of things right. Like I tried to be a good person. I prayed, I did these things and it all fell apart. Don't be surprised. But the burden is not on you or on me to make this happen. It's just simply to let Jesus do it for us. There's this great story in the Old Testament about Hezekiah, who's this wonderful king. And you got this whole story about all the great things that Hezekiah did. And it says right in the middle, after 14 years of being a, just this really godly man, Sennacherib invaded. You're like, what? He's one of the good kings. Like good things are supposed to happen. Let me just tell you, if you're doing this right at some point, Jesus will begin to move you from stage one into stage two. And he's going to do it without you necessarily knowing it's happening miraculously. Second observation. It's a process. The reason why we took all of Mark 8 to go over this and the rest of the gospel of Mark is still going to be the disciples trying to come to grips with the fact that sacrifice and suffering is required. And I will tell you, it wasn't like that day at Wheaton College that simply like the light switch flipped. I'm like, oh yeah, I love sacrifice. I love suffering. Bring it on. Can't wait for more of it. In fact, the rest of the second stage is just simply learning. I don't know if I'll ever get to the point where Paul is, where he rejoices in suffering. I want to get there, but still I think, okay, Lord, how can you make sure that the talks that go late go super smooth and there's no problems? I'm not thinking, okay, Lord, whatever suffering and sacrifice you need to have happen, let that happen so you can accomplish your will. It's a process. I feel like I started that process probably before that event in Wheaton College. I'm sure there were things earlier in my life where Jesus was preparing me for those things. It's just that when I look back, that was a signature event because I feel like before that, lots of the struggles I had were because of my own sins. In that case, most of the struggles were because of what other people were doing. And Jesus was like, look, avoiding sin does not mean you'll avoid suffering. Jesus was sinless and suffered more than anybody else. And so it's a process. And so you're not looking for this signature event, this one moment, this date in time where you're like, I was stage one up until 2019. And then on January 3rd, I switched to stage two. It's a process. Third observation for you. It always has stuff to do with people pleasing. Because what people pleasing is ultimately about is about pleasing myself. <laughs> the reason we want to please others is we like the affirmation we get from them. 
The reason why Jesus says, look, avoid the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees, the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees, people pleasing. The Pharisees did what they did because they were worried about the crowds. Herod ended up in a story right before this one, chopping off the head of John the Baptist because when his daughter asked him to do it, he looked around and saw all the people who were watching. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Look, we got to get out of this stage where we're so concerned about what everybody else thinks of us. What is everybody else doing? And this transition is a gift from God. People-pleasing is an addiction that will destroy you. Constantly being worried on social media, what other people think of you. Constantly trying to do ministry, worrying about what everybody thinks. Constantly struggling with, okay, in the middle of COVID this year, how in, this is one of the gifts of COVID. There is no decision that principals, that teachers, that pastors, that business leaders could make that would please everybody. Whatever decision you made, half the people were going to be angry. This was the Lord trying to say, you don't want to be in this world. It's fine for a season, but at some point come out of this. Jesus says, look, you can either try to please those 200 people who, to be honest, I don't think those people are going to be happy in heaven. He's like, or you can try to please me. Who, what's the verse from that song? Who sees the depths of my heart and loves me the same. Four, and finally, this relates to that. At the heart of what's going on here is compassion. We didn't read the verse, but at the beginning of Mark 8, the reason why Jesus feeds the 4,000 is because he has compassion on them. See, the miracle that the Pharisees want is they want lightning from heaven. They want fire to fall from heaven. They want a sign in the sky. They want an audible voice. They want angels showing up. You know what the problem with all of those miraculous events? There's nothing compassionate about those. Feeding people, that's compassionate. Healing people, that's compassionate. Even when Jesus walks on the water, which is the most sort of like, ooh, fire from heaven kind of thing, he does it to get to the disciples in the boat not to show off. At the very heart of all that's happening is compassion. And Jesus calls us from one stage of discipleship to the next, not because he's like, hey, look, you've had enough good times. It's time to have some bad times. It's because he knows, yes, the crucifixion happens in the second half of Mark's gospel, but so does the resurrection. This is where the real power is to be set free from pursuing the fickle interests of the people around us is compassion from Jesus. And the reason why he calls us to embrace suffering and sacrifice is because this is when the Lord of suffering and sacrifice comes and wraps his arm around us in a special way. When we move into this second stage of discipleship, yes, it's harder. But you get more of Jesus and more of his compassion and more of his mercy. All right, so our time's just about up. <clears throat> Let me give you just quickly uh, kind of some applications to think about from today. One, if you're not a Christian, uh, Eric gave you the invitation yesterday. I want to repeat it today. If you're waiting for fire from heaven, if you're waiting for some unambiguous sort of like angels appearing, if you're waiting for something where Jesus himself shows up and says, start believing, you're looking for the wrong thing. 
What you want to look for is a God who loves you so much that he would become a human to die for you. There is no better sign of who you want to follow. And so if you're at stage zero and you're looking around and going, hey, the world's a mess. Why would I ever believe in God? Or if you're like, hey, the church is a mess. Why would I ever believe in God? You're looking for the wrong things. And God in his miraculous power wants to show you there is someone who loves you totally, unconditionally, and completely. And you want to follow him. If you're in stage one, maybe you're a newer Christian. Maybe you're experiencing the blessings of just beginning to follow Jesus. Please embrace it. It's from the Lord. It's fantastic. If you think, man, this Christianity thing is awesome. Like I've got new friends. I've got new relationships. I see the blessings of the Lord. It's designed to be that way. There was a guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman uh, who wrote a song that I loved when I was sort of in college, kind of in that first stage of discipleship called uh, The Great Adventure. And it was this really upbeat guitar song, like, come with us, come with Jesus on The Great Adventure. And then uh, years later, I read his biography uh, about, or his autobiography about his then five-year-old daughter being killed by, in a car accident by his 18-year-old son just unbelievable suffering, suffering for the family, suffering for the marriage, suffering for the poor 18-year-old who kills this girl. And in the book, he said, I didn't think I could ever sing that great adventure song again. Like Christianity just didn't feel like a great adventure anymore. But then he went back and he sang it because there are lots of us, it's still an adventure. And if you're at that point where you are starting to sprint with Jesus and everybody tells you, hey, hey, it's a marathon. No, sprint. When it's time to slow down, he will slow you down. And if you're at that phase where you're like, man, I'm seeing miracles, people are coming to faith, embrace it, enjoy it. It's a gift from the Lord. It's part of the process. Nobody starts the discipleship journey in stage two. But just know that at some point when the time is right, Jesus will begin to move you from this is a great adventure to this is a powerful adventure. <laughs> And this is an adventure in which I don't just kind of ride my horse with Jesus, but Jesus carries me through it in a new and powerful way. Third, maybe you're here and you're kind of in that transition. And maybe the Lord summoned you here this week because just like healing that blind man at that moment, he wants you to know, hey, look, what's happening to you is not crazy. What you're going through is not unusual. I sat in that college at Wheaton and thought, I'm a failure. I failed. I just want to tell you, if you're going through that transition where you're trying to do everything right and you're suffering and sacrificing and it's all falling apart, you're probably succeeding and not failing. And if you're in that transition, I just want to tell you, embrace it. It was hard for Peter. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see what was going on, but Jesus led him safely through it. It's amazing to me that the one book in the Bible that is most taken up with righteous suffering is First Peter, written by the person who couldn't see it at all, who rebuked Jesus for saying that anybody righteous would have to suffer. It took Peter some time, but he got it. If you're in the middle of that transition, know you're right where you're supposed to be. And then finally, if you feel like you've kind of gotten to the point where you're like, all right, I get it. I'm supposed to embrace suffering and sacrifice. My encouragement to you is, is I don't know, maybe there is a time in which you just start to crave suffering. But I think stage two is the thing you just keep going through over and over again. And you keep reminding yourself, it is about suffering. It is about sacrifice. It's about following Jesus. 
humanly speaking, we'd love if the whole thing was all stage one. It was all miracles. It was all, all our friends came to faith. Our family loved the fact that we are Christians. Work always went well. School was always easy. But I'm telling you that once you grasp the depth of Jesus walking alongside you in the suffering and the sacrifice, he's better. He's better than if everything just went smoothly. It's so much better when he puts his arm around you and says, the Lord is your light and salvation. Whom shall you fear? The Lord is the stronghold of your life. Of whom shall you be afraid? Let's pray. Jesus, we choose you. Uh, We choose you over everything else. Man, Lord, how true what Eric said. So many of us are Jesus if, Jesus and, Jesus but. Forgive us, Lord. It's just you, and we want you from start to finish. Thank you that you're in charge of this process and we're not. And Lord, for each person here, whatever stage they're on in their journey, whatever they're doing, wherever they're going, thank you for being a good shepherd who loves his sheep to the end. Thank you for washing our feet. Thank you for dying for us. And thank you for walking with us through death to eternal life. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I ran a little over, so if you could take like a four-minute break, uh, we might be able to recover a little bit of the time. So uh, grab some coffee, go to the bathroom, and then um, be back here uh, by 11.23 or 4 if you could. Thank you. Awesome.